Unless something changes, tonight will be the last message in this series. Next week, we're gonna, our prayer service will be on praying for illumination and revelation from God's Word. And, but I want to end the series with tonight by, by explaining the necessity of God's Word. Now, in some ways, everything we've talked about in this series on being a people of the book explains the necessity of God's Word. But there is one reason God's Word is necessary that we haven't hit on yet, and that reason is hope. Now, one of the things that I pray for for our church every day is for God to make us into a beacon of hope. Now, my, my prayer for us to be a beacon of hope is twofold. First, for us to have a, a culture of hope. A culture of hope is when each one of us who calls this their church home comes. We gather together with a sense of hope, anticipation, and expectation of what God is going to do in us and through us and for us. Second, for the people of our community to know this is a place where they can come and find hope, help, and healing through Christ. I want our church to be such a hopeful place and us to be such hopeful people that we regularly experience what Peter talked about. Peter said that to sanctify the Lord in your hearts, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect. I want people to see how we are when we're together. And I want people to see how we live when we go out and about in our daily lives. And I want them to see such a difference in us, in how we live and how we act and how we think and how we talk, that there is something in them that presses them to ask us about the hope we have within us. This is what I mean to be a beacon of hope, not just our church as a beacon of hope, but us as individuals. I mean, our, there is no nebulous entity called Northridge Free Will Baptist Church. There's us. And so whatever our church is, is a reflection of what we are. Whatever our church does is, is going to be done because we are the ones who do it. So if we as a church are a beacon of hope, it must mean we as individuals are filled with hope. We abound with hope. But hope has to have a foundation. Hope is not something that can be conjured up just at will. Because when we talk about hope in a, in a Christian perspective as disciples of Jesus, we're not talking about some sort of far-fetched wish we would like to come to pass. I, I hope we don't get any wind this week. It's not anything like that. Rather, hope, as we find it in God's Word, is a well-grounded, well-founded assurance and an, even an expectation that God will do exactly what He has said He will do. Now that sense of expectation or anticipation is a part of what it is to, to hope. We not only believe God can do all the things we see in His Word, but we expect, we anticipate that He will do them in us and through us and for us. But where does that hope come from? What is the foundation of that so that we can say, this is why I have this kind of a hope? I want us to look Romans 15 and verse 4. is the only verse we're going to look at. Page 868 in your pew Bible. And here's what it says. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. So the title of the message tonight is The Necessity of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you. We exalt you and we magnify you. We thank you for your word. 
and what we have in it, what it teaches us and how it instructs us and just what it does in our lives. We pray tonight, make us a hope-filled people. Make us a people who live with a sense of anticipation that you are absolutely going to do everything your word says you do. Let us live with such anticipation that people can see it in how we talk. They can hear it in how we pray. That they can see it in in how we live. And when we gather together and, and guests come and join with us, they can literally feel it in our worship and in our attitudes as we meet together. And they would, as Peter says, they would ask us a reason for the hope that is within us. Make us those kinds of people. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So hope comes from God's word. That's what Romans 15 and 4 tells us. Everything written in God's word was written for us so that we could learn from what is written. We could take comfort from what is written. We would be encouraged to persevere and not give up because of what is written. And thus we would have hope. So the key truth tonight is we need the word of God so we can be filled with hope from God. We need the word of God so we can be filled with hope from God. So how does God's word give us hope? I think there are three broad ways God's word gives us hope. The first is God's word reveals the almighty God. Now, the idea of God being almighty and all powerful is not new. God's word reveals this to us. In many places, many places, it says it explicitly, it says it implicitly. Uh, And God, the time tonight would not allow us to look at all of the places or even most of the places that say this. But there are two places, I think, that if we think on these things, it is a constant reminder of the almightiness of God. The first is creation. God's word always explains God as the creator of all things. God's word begins... That in the beginning there was nothing but God. And then God decided there ought to be other stuff. And so God created other stuff. I mean, that that is literally the opening words of the Bible. That in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so we're given this picture that there was a time when there was nothing. Nothing but God. God has always been there. And He was there by Himself. He was there and He determined... There ought to be other stuff, and so he created it. Now, the creation account given in Genesis isn't the only creation story that exists in our world. right? When you look at the creation myths associated with other cultures that existed in the time of Moses and Abraham, you find that there are other accounts of how the world came into being. Now, skeptics often use these other accounts to discredit the Genesis account by saying what what we have is every culture. They just had they had to had to find a way to come up with how things came into being. So every culture came up with their own way. They understood it came into being. And what we have in Genesis, that's just how the Jewish people, that's how they determined the world came into being. And, and the skeptics would say that that one that all the creation accounts kind of have some similarities. There's always like a, a godlike being that always does the creating. And, and because of that, none of them are really true. None are any more true or any better than the others. But what I want to propose to you is that the Genesis account is unique 
among all the creation stories that exist in the cultures that existed at this time and even among other cultures that have come about. In in other accounts of creation, there, there is usually some form of opposition to the creator. It might have been another God who didn't want there to be other stuff. It could have been uh, the other God who wanted to destroy the creation. But however it worked out, there was always an opposing force who tried to stop the creator God from creating. And they had a struggle, but thankfully, creator God won and they created all the stuff that there is. Some of the accounts, Creator God won due to stronger power. In other accounts, though, Creator God really wasn't stronger than the opposition force, but he was craftier, he was smarter. And so he he tricked and won through deceit and trickery. Uh, one of the other differences in other creation accounts is the Creator started with something to create everything. In the other creation accounts, Uh, There's always stuff that the God, creator God, uses to create what we have. In in one account, one God died. I can't remember the name of the story, so I couldn't figure out how the God died. I can't remember how the God died. But the God died. And in an effort to sort of honor the God for dying, creator God uses this deity's body to create the world. And through the life force that was left in Creator God's body, that's where life on earth came into being. But regardless of of what there was, there was always some sort of pre-existing material that Creator God used to create. And in essence, when you read them, Creator God didn't really create as much as remodel. They took what was there but uninhabitable and they reworked it. And made it where people could live on it. Now, the thing is, neither of those are present in the creation account in Genesis. In the beginning, there's God. Now, we say, but what about Satan? It's true. Satan existed. But Satan didn't come along until Genesis 3 to oppose what God had already done. Satan wasn't there in the beginning. Satan is not always existing like God is. Satan was a, is a created being. At some point, God himself fashioned and made Satan as he did all of the other angels. And so there was no opposition to God's creating. There was just God who said, I think there ought to be stuff. And so he made the stuff. And then secondly, the Genesis account teaches that, that God created everything out of nothing. There was nothing. Until God spoke and then there was something. God did not use any sort of pre-existing material to create the world. Unlike the false gods of the creation myths, God didn't remodel. He legitimately created. He thought in his mind what ought to be and he created that thing out of his own power. And there's one other thing, and this stands in contrast to them as well. Not only did God create the world out of nothing, but he did it in a very particular way. If you're familiar with the Genesis account, you know that throughout Genesis 1, there's an oft-repeated formula. That God said, and then there was. Both Psalm 33.6 and Hebrews 11.3 testify to the fact God merely spoke the world into existence. Now, there is a specific reason we're told God spoke the world into existence. 
It is to emphasize to us the greatness of God's power. Did God strain himself in creating the world? He didn't. Did God exhaust himself in creating the world? Did God even put forth a great deal of effort to create all that there is? No, he didn't. Our God is so great that when he determined there ought to be stuff, he just spoke. And it came into being. It was no more difficult for him to create the earth than to say, let there be a planet. That's all it took for him. Our God is so great and so powerful. His words bring things into existence that didn't exist before. And there is no one or nothing that can hinder him or stop him. It's awesome. So we can remind ourselves of the Almighty God by looking at and reminding ourselves that God is our creator. But not only creation, but at the opposite end of the timeline, revelation. God not only begins history within the beginning God created, God brings history to a close. The story of revelation is the story of God bringing history to a close. And when God determines it's time to bring history to a close, he just does it. God no more struggles to win the victory in Revelation than he struggles to create the world in Genesis. God determines it's time and he just does it. When God determines it's time to start pouring out a measure of his judgment, he just does. He causes lightning and thunder to come on the earth. He causes stars to fall upon the earth. God causes the sun to burn super hot. God causes weird animal-like things to come on the earth. God just does it. And no one can oppose him or stop him. Now, there is a period. There is a period when the Antichrist reigns on the earth and it gives the appearance from a human perspective that he has all power and he has won. But it's just an illusion. God's word says the authority that the Antichrist has was actually given to him. Who gave him the authority to rule over the earth for a time? It was God. It was God who allowed him to reign. It was God who allowed him to exist. And then when God determines he's reigned long enough and he's done enough, God conquers him and tosses him and the devil into a pit for a thousand years. And after a thousand years, he's let out, but it's God who lets him out. And when God determines that his being out and has stirring up enough trouble has gone on long enough, Jesus comes and he Destroys them with the word of his mouth. He just speaks. And the devil is conquered. And he is taken and he is tossed in the lake of fire for all of eternity. And through it all, God just does it. Now again, from the perspective of earth, the devil seems like a great adversary right now and in Revelation. But from God's perspective and from the perspective of God's word, not so much. The book of Revelation is not the story of God's or or Satan's last hurrah against God. His last and final push to overthrow God and sit on the throne and be worshipped as God. And he he gets close, but thankfully God wins in the end. That's not the story of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is how God has determined it's time for the history to be brought to an end. It's time for God to bring about the the fulfillment of everything he's ever promised. 
And he begins this by pouring out a measure of judgment on the world before he fully brings history to a close and brings all of the world, Satan included, into judgment. Revelation reminds us there is an almighty God who sits on the throne. He is in the heavens and he does whatsoever he wills. And there is no one or nothing that can oppose him or stop him. So how does reminding ourselves of the almighty God, God's word revealing to us the almighty God, give us hope? The God of creation and the God of revelation is the God to whom we pray. Have you ever, I mean, have you ever really taken the time to focus on that before you pray, just to think about the God we're talking to? I mean, we're we're not just talking to the air. We're not just talking to some God out there somewhere. The God of Genesis 1 who said, let there be and there was, that's the God we're praying to. The God of Revelation who overthrows the evil kingdoms of the world, tosses the Antichrist and the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire. This is the God we're praying to. How powerful is our God? How great is our God? At the same time, this great almighty God invites us to cast all of our cares on him for the sole reason that he cares for us. It is a hopeful thing to know that the God to whom I'm praying is all powerful and he really can do whatever he wants to do. And there is no one or nothing that can stop him. This is an encouraging thing as we pray. This keeps us from despairing at the crushing cares of life. This keeps us from despairing when we see people we know and love who are enslaved to sin or deceived by the devil. Our God is greater than the enslaving sin. Our God is greater than the deceiving devil. Our God is greater than the crushing cares of life, whatever they may be. And he can do whatever it is he has said he will do. And not only can he do it, he will do it. So when we read God's word and we're reminded about the almighty God, our hope rises. And it comes out in our prayers and it's seen in our lives and it's heard in our voices. This almighty God is the God revealed in the word. And this revelation is why we need the word of God. We need the word of God so we can be filled with hope from God. So God's word reveals the almighty God, but God's word also reveals the empowering God. Feelings of of helplessness or inadequacy can lead to feeling hopeless. And yet, disciples of Jesus need never feel helpless or inadequate. God always empowers us. To do whatever it is he wants us to do. Think about that. We see this all throughout God's word. Now. In in the Bible. God is the overall star. Right. None of the people who are featured. Are the star of the show. It's always God. But God has a. An incredibly large supporting cast as it were. And the point of their stories isn't how great they are, but how great their God is. Now, let me give you my three favorite examples. One is, is Moses. And we know Moses is the great deliverer of the people from Egyptian bondage and the giver of God's law. Yet it was not Moses who delivered the people from Egyptian bondage. 
It was God. All Moses did, think about it, all Moses did was he went before Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. In fact, Moses didn't even say it. He told Aaron what God said and God and Aaron said it. And then God would say, oh, he doesn't believe you. Stick your staff in the Nile. And so Moses would stick the staff in the Nile and God turned it to blood. The story of deliverance from Egypt isn't the story of the great Moses rallying the people to fight for victory. Or the great Moses negotiating with Pharaoh to release the people. It's not that. The story of the deliverance from Egypt is the story of God demonstrating his great power in such a way Pharaoh literally begged Moses to take the people and leave Egypt. That's the story of Moses and the deliverance from Egypt. There's David. The most famous story of David's exploits is his battle with the giant Goliath. And it's a great story. The armies of Saul and the armies of the Philistines meet on a battlefield. And as was common in those days, armies had a champion. And so the Philistine champion, he went out there and he said, you pick a dude to fight me. And the winner, that's it. That's the battle. Whole battle's over. Just instead of this massive loss of life, two people fight the end. But Goliath is a giant. He's an enormous man. He's intimidating. And so the army is intimidated. If there was a champion in Israel, he would not step up and go out. And no one would. Got to the point that Saul was offering a life life of no taxes for your family. That's a pretty good environment. I mean, that's a pretty good offer. That'd be motivating in America. But even with that offer, nobody would take it. Until one day a young man named David arrives to bring food to his brothers. He volunteers for the mission. And David is told he cannot possibly win. Because he's only a boy. And Goliath has been a warrior since he was a boy. But despite the warnings, David goes out with a slingshot. And he uses it to knock Goliath down and out. And then he takes Goliath's sword and he cuts off his head. Of course, we know the story of David. He goes on to become king and a mighty warrior in his own right. But the story of David and Goliath is not the story of a great up and coming warrior who won this great victory. It's the story of how a great God can use anyone he chooses to accomplish his will. It's the story of God's victory over the Philistines, not really David's victory over Goliath. And then one more quickly is the story of Elijah. Elijah may be my favorite person in the Bible outside of Jesus. The most famous story with Elijah is his epic prayer battle on Mount Carmel. Israel is given into idolatry. They're worshiping Baal. They're worshiping all of these other gods of the groves. And so Elijah challenges them to a battle. All the prophets of Baal will meet up there and Elijah will meet up there. And what they're going to do is they're going to both build fire pits, they're going to build altars, and they're going to put a sacrifice on it, but nobody's going to put a fire underneath it. Instead, they're going to pray for their God to answer with fire. And the rules are simple. The first God to answer by fire is the winner and the one and only true God over all the earth. Elijah, so confident that there is no God named Baal that has any power whatsoever, lets them go first. 
And they pray and they dance and they chant and they cry out and they cut themselves and they do all manner of things that pagans did to get the attention of their God. And yet he did not answer. And Elijah steps up. He pours water on the sacrifice, prays a simple prayer, no jumping, no hooping, no hollering. And God answers by fire, licks up the water, consumes the sacrifice. Yahweh is the real God. And yet the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel is not the story of how great Elijah is. It's not a story about how great Elijah's prayer life was, what a powerful intercessor he was. It is the story of how great the God of Elijah is. That's the story. That, that's what it's about. And this is why these stories give us hope. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Now, this is just part of the verse, but it's the only part I want us to think about tonight. What this means is Elijah wasn't a spiritual superhero. Elijah was just as human as you and I are. He suffered from the same struggles and the same issues we do. And what was true of Elijah is true of all the other heroes of God's word other than Jesus. Think about Moses. What was Moses' first response when God said he was going to deliver the, the, the Israelites from Egypt? First it was, that's awesome. And then God said, and I'm going to send you. And Elijah was like, me? I can't. And this begins an intensely long dialogue of God saying, I'm going to do it. And, a lot, and Moses going, not me. I, I can't for this reason. And Moses given excuse after excuse as to why he couldn't be the one to go. And God reassuring Moses, not by saying, Moses, you're awesome and you're enough, but by saying, I'm awesome and I'm enough. Not only that, but Moses was uh, Moses had anger management issues. Why was Moses in the desert in the desert tending sheep anyway? He got mad and killed somebody and it got found out and he had to run and hide lest he faced the judgment. Moses came down from the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments and he found the people acting crazy and worshiping a golden calf and he threw the tablet containing the, or threw the tablets containing the Ten Commandments down on the ground and broke them, took the calf, ground it up, put it in water, and made the people drink the water with the ground up golden calf in it. Moses was a man with a nature just like ours. Think about David. When God chose one of Jesse's sons to be king, it never occurred to Jesse that David might be the one God was going to choose. I mean, it was so bad that after all of the other sons had been gone through and God said it wasn't them, even then it never occurred to Jesse that it might be the one that was out tending the sheep. Till so Samuel said, is, is, there, is this it? And Jesse was like, well, there is another one, a little ruddy-faced boy. And he's like, go get that guy. Right? Even David was so ordinary that even his own family didn't think he could have been the one God was talking about there. David had a well-known indiscretion with another man's wife. Not only did he have the indiscretion, he killed the man in order to, to, over, to cover up what he had done. And then when you read the Psalms, so many of them are written by David. And many of them are written from a place of depression, despair, even doubts and anger with God at what was going on in his life. David was a man with a nature just like ours. 
Think about Elijah. After the great victory at Mount Carmel, the queen sends him a letter saying, tomorrow by this time you'll be with the prophets of Belar. You're going to be dead just like they are. And after, I mean, to me this, in some ways this is always mind-blowing. I mean, it's only been hours since he prayed a prayer and fire fell from heaven. And the queen says, I'm going to kill you. And he knows very well the God who sends fire from heaven. And rather than going, my God will protect me because my God can do anything. Elijah runs away. Days away. And he gets down and he prays and he tells God, essentially, I am no good, God. You might as well just go ahead and kill me. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. And no matter which hero of the faith we look at, we'll find exactly the same thing. They all had flaws. They all had failures. And they all had issues. Not one of their stories, other than Jesus, is about how great they were. Instead, their stories are all, every single one, about how great their God is. And what this means for us and how it gives us hope is that God uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. God will use us. He will work in us and through us and for us. For our good, for his glory, if we're willing. I mean, you think about it. Literally the only thing that hinders God from working in us and through us and for us to make a difference in the world around us for his glory is our unwillingness to be for God to work in us, through us and for us. Our flaws and our failures and our issues are fully known by God. He doesn't have buyer's remorse. He doesn't look down and think, well, that one's, gosh, that's too big. He knows everything, everything going on in our life. And yet he is already great enough that he can overcome that. God doesn't need us to be great because he's great. God doesn't need us to be awesome because he's awesome. So if you look in the mirror and what you see is an ordinary person with flaws and failures and issues. Congratulations. You are exactly the kind of person God has repeatedly used in his word and throughout history for his glory to accomplish his will. Our ability to do what God wants us to do is never based on us. It's never based on our being great. It's never based on our being good. It's never based upon our adequacy. It is always based on God. God is great. God is good. God is more than adequate. Our sufficiency and our ability to do what God wants done always comes from God and never, ever from us. And in fact, the reality according to what we see in God's word is if we feel sufficient and if we feel awesome and if we feel good, 
we're likely to be a hindrance to what God actually wants done. Rather than our confidence being a help, it becomes something that hinders God working in us and through us and for us. This is the God revealed in the word. And this revelation is why we need the word of God. We, we need the word of God so we can be filled with hope from God. And then finally, so we need God's, God's word reveals the almighty God. God's word reveals the empowering God. And then finally, God's word reveals the son of God. Now, God's word gives us many great and precious promises. I want to remind us of you. I'm not going to throw them up on the screen. Uh, just some of the promises we're given. There is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. John 3.18, Romans 8.1. We can do all things through Christ. Philippians 4.13. God will provide for all of our needs. Philippians 4.19, Matthew 25, Matthew 6.25-33. Jesus has freed us from slavery to sin. Romans 6.11-18. Our prayers of faith are powerful because God is powerful. Mark 11.20-24. Nothing we do in Jesus' name is ever done in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. God will save people when we're faithful to share the gospel. Mark 4, 26-29, Romans 1, 16 and 17. God can do more in us, through us, and for us than we could possibly imagine. Ephesians 3, 20. The Holy Spirit will produce good fruit in our lives. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. God will complete the work that he began in us when we were saved, Philippians 1, 6. And we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us, Romans 8 and 37. Those are big. I mean, those are enormous things. Things I would say all of us would say, yes and amen, do it, Lord. And the critics and the devil... And our doubts, though, they will cry out, how can you be sure? How can you really trust God will do those things? How can you anticipate? How can you have expectation? God will do all of those things. Well, God has given us a physical reminder that is a, that is a certainty of his promises. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? The, the phrase who did not spare and delivered him over. It's talking about obviously the death of Jesus on the cross. Did not spare means God did not refuse. And really it means more than that. It, it, it really pictures God did not hesitate to deliver Jesus over for us all. Think about that first. I mean, think about the magnitude of that statement. So there's God in eternity looking down at us, seeing all humanity and all time. And we've sinned, and we've rebelled, and we've thumbed our nose at God, and we've shook our fist at God, and we've done things He has said not do, and we have declared God will not rule over us. And there is a just wrath that's going to fall on us at some point, and God is just in his wrath. But there's a way for us to escape that judgment and that wrath, but there's only one way. And that way is for 
Jesus to come, to walk among us, to live a perfect life that we didn't live, to do all the things God wanted him to do, and then to die on the cross for our sins. But it wasn't just the physical stuff that happened. I mean, he was beaten, and he was had a crown of thorns forced on him, and he was nailed through the hands and through the feet. Clearly, severe beatings. That wasn't all Jesus would have to do. Physical punishment wasn't enough to pay the penalty for sin. There is the wrath of God that must be satisfied. And so on the cross, God turned his back and Jesus was left alone. And all the wrath of God against all of our sin would be placed upon him. Essentially, he would take hell in our place on the cross. So here's the choice that God the Father has. Leave us in our sin and let us suffer our well-deserved fate. Or send Jesus To suffer our fate in our place. That would be a hard choice, wouldn't it? It would be for me. I mean, would you sacrifice one of your children for a a world of ungrateful people? Many of whom would never appreciate it. And even those who claim to appreciate it would live like it didn't mean anything to them. I mean, would would you even sacrifice yourself? I mean, the people I would sacrifice my life for, that's a that's a small group of people. The people I would give one of my children for, I don't even know if I have a list. I just don't think there's anybody on there I would give one of my children for. And that was the choice the father had. And the, the lesson here is that he didn't even hesitate. He didn't say, ah, boy, they, they deserve it. It was yes and amen. But it wasn't even it wasn't just the Father who said yes and amen without hesitation. Even Jesus had no hesitation. There wasn't Jesus going, no, I don't want to pay the penalty. I, I don't want to. I don't want to go for them. Jesus willingly came, and he went to the cross. In his humanity, he prayed, Lord, if there's any other way, then he submitted to the Father's will. God knew that he wanted to save us. From eternal separation from him. And the only way this could be accomplished would be for the death of Jesus on the cross in our place. And according to Romans 8.32, God did not hesitate even for a second about what to do. He did not spare his own son, but he delivered him over for us all. Think about how great that is. We rebelled against God. We were justly condemned for our rebellion. And yet God took the initiative, sent his son to come and die for our sins. And as great as that is, the verse doesn't end there. It asks a rhetorical question. How then will he not also with Jesus freely give us all things? The point is clear. If God has given us his son, won't he do everything else? Since God has already done the biggest thing he could possibly do in not sparing Jesus but delivering him over for us all, won't he then do everything else? If God did that which is greatest, can't we trust him to do that which is less? I mean, if I can look at the cross and I can know that what happened there was a loving God sent his loving son willing 
to die in my place so that I could be redeemed in, in keeping with the promise he had given. And if he kept that great promise for my sake, won't he keep everything else? If I can trust my sin debt was paid on the cross, then can't I trust that because of the cross, everything else will come to pass just as God has said? Well, 2 Corinthians 1 and 20 tells us, it's a parallel passage to this, that Jesus, because of his death and because of his resurrection, he is the yes and the amen to all of God's promises. Think about that. All of these things that I mentioned, these promises. Philippians 1.6, God will complete the work he began in our lives. I don't have to pray and say, oh God, please don't give up on me, God. Please continue the work that you began on my salvation. I don't have to ask for that because he's going to do it. That is, That promise is yes and amen. Yes and amen. The God who saved me will not give up on me. I don't have to say, God, please show me how to say the right words so that my prayers can be powerful. The promise that my prayers are powerful because God is powerful is yes and amen. I don't have to say, oh, God, please let me be able to do what you want me to do. Because Philippians has already said God will enable us to do everything that he wants us to do. So that promise is yes and amen. I, I don't even have to say, oh, God, please don't let me face condemnation someday. Please, God, don't let me come under your wrath and end up in hell. Yes and amen. There is no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. Yes and amen. Now, Jesus, we, look, we can look at every promise given to us in the word. And we can say, that's mine. Yes and amen because of Jesus. God did not waver in keeping his first promise, even though it meant the death of his son. And knowing this should give us hope that God will keep the rest of our promises. God will keep the rest of his promises. This is the God revealed in the word. And this is why we need the word of God. We need the word of God so we can be filled with hope from God. So this is why we need God's word. But what I want to do just, and I know this is going to be three points, but I promise it's just a minute or two each point. So we're almost finished. What can we do to ensure we're receiving hope from the word of God? Here's the three things. Believe God's word. God's word is not going to give us hope if we don't believe it's true. Right? I mean, we, we have to believe it's right. That whatever it says... It's right. That, that's, that's true. That's the thing. It's real in that. It's right. But not only it's true, but it's real. It's right and it's real. Now, so when we talk about that God will not give up on us, that he will complete the work, that's real. I mean, he really won't give up on us. He really will. That's not the pie in the sky. Gosh, I hope my prayers are powerful because God is powerful. No, it's real. That is really what it describes as the life of a disciple of Jesus. That is really the life we can live. That is really possible to us. 
We must believe this is real. It's not a picture of how things should be and hopefully one day could be a little bit of. It's real. This Everything it says is what should be in our lives. Then we also, we must believe it's sufficient. And here's what I mean by sufficient. Everything I need to know about the Almighty God is revealed here. Right? I, I don't, now, listen, I like podcasts, I like books, I watch YouTube sermons, all of that. I'm not saying any of it. We're at a church and I'm preaching, so I'm not against those things. But let me be clear. We do not need some podcast or some YouTuber or some social media prophet to give us a new revelation to tell us what God is like. We don't need it. And it's probably false and heretical to begin with. What we need is here. We don't need some prophet or a YouTuber to tell us about how God empowers people. It's here. We don't need a prophet or a social media influencer to tell us who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It's here. God's word is sufficient. Everything I need to know to be able to live for God, accomplish his will, glorify him and advance the kingdom. I have right here. This was given so that we would be thoroughly equipped Prepared for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.17 We must believe God's word is sufficient. We must study God's word. Right? It says whatever was written was written for our instruction. I ain't going to know what was written unless I'm reading it. Unless I'm studying it on my own. So I preach the Bible. And I teach the Bible. But if the only Bible we get Sunday morning, Sunday school, Wednesday night, we are not getting enough to gird our hope up. Not in the world we're currently living in. The world is dark, depressing. People are just awful at so many places. We need God's word regularly, daily, so that we can Get the instruction out of it. We can be reminded. I mean, listen, if you all say you've read the Bible through 20 times, I'll believe you. I do. I truly do. And so it's not so much for most of us. Many, maybe we're not reading it to learn new things about Almighty God. We're just being reminded about familiar things. There is something powerful about being reminded every day. God is almighty. God can do anything. God uses flawed, messed up people. Jesus is the yes and the amen. You know, some days I can, I mean, there are days, and I'm not trying to brag, but there are days where I just feel really pretty good about myself. I mean, I I like did the stuff I was supposed to do. I didn't have hateful thoughts about people at Walmart. I, I didn't I didn't act ugly in my mind. I didn't I didn't waste my time. I, I mean, I, I just it was like that was a. I had a good time of prayer, a good time in the Word. And on those days, I mean, that's encouraging. That's helpful. But you know, there are days where I don't do as well. I have bad thoughts. I say dumb things. I react in ways that are wrong. I know that's shocking to you. But I do. And to come to God's Word 
And to read Peter saying, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. I can be like, thank you, God, for Peter and his big mouth. Wow, that's encouraging to me. I can read about Moses and his anger. And his reacting in anger. And I can say, thank you, Jesus, for Moses and what he's done. There are days I feel so deeply inadequate to do what God has called me to do. And to read the Apostle Paul saying, my sufficiency is of Christ. Oh, gracious, that's satisfying and helpful. Keeps me from despairing unto death. But all of that was stuff I knew. I knew all of those stories. But just to be reminded of them is good. No matter how spiritually mature we are, how much we know God's word, we still need it every day of our lives. If we want the hope that it contains, we must study it. And then we need to obey it. It says, through perseverance... And the encouragement of Scripture, the idea of perseverance usually refers to keeping on in our keeping on. And I think this is two things. I think in one, what was written that gives us hope encourages us to keep on keeping on, not to give up in despair and discouragement. But at the same time, that perseverance is the continual obedience. I do it when it's hard. I do it when I feel inadequate. I do it when my faith is strong and I do it when my faith is weak. I let the fact that what I see in God's word just keep pressing me forward. And as I press forward, I see God keeps his word. And it's hopeful and it's encouraging. And as I keep moving and keep going, I begin to experience more of who God is and what God does in those weak moments of my life. God's word was was given so that we might have hope. We need to believe it. We need to study it. We need to obey it. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. You're great. You're awesome. You're worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, we we live in a world things are hard at times. Father, tonight... We in here are either crushed by the cares of life or we know someone who is. And Lord, we need hope. We need hope so that we can stand up under the crushing cares of life. And we need hope so that we can give it. Lord, let us be a people of hope that abound in hope through your Holy Spirit. Let us speak in hope. Let us pray in hope. Let us live in hope. Father, let us be hope givers to everybody we encounter. Let everybody we encounter leave us feeling encouraged. Leave us feeling like they want what we have if they don't know Jesus. Make us those kinds of people we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.